You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. The time now is 10.05. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, 26th of February, 2023. The time now is 10.05. Welcome to the Weekend World Show with us at Listen to Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile or online, 24 hours a day, broadcasting live from the Beth of Fatu Mosque in London. The Weekend World Show, the current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews with a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and spirituality. The message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views or stories by phoning on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests and not of the, the Muslim community. The mediocre, Walid, welcome to the show. Nice drive in with the lovely sun out. Yes, makes a change from the weather that we were experiencing the last uh, few days. Few days, very yeah, cold, yeah. very cold, and uh, yeah. beautiful and sunny. Cold wind blowing, but it was mm. the drive was lovely, seeing all the countryside in its daylight, and you know, mm. instead of the dark nights that we were driving into uh, mm-hmm. the studio with. But anyway, um, William Arthur Ward, an American motivational writer, he writes: the mediocre teacher tells. The good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, and the great teacher inspires. Mm. And this quote sort of uh, hit my sort of uh, thoughts because we've just been celebrating the prophecy of the promised Messiah, Mm. about a son that was to be born. And that son was certainly someone who was very inspiring. Very inspiring. Uh, he was a spirit teacher. Uh, and he was somebody who uh, not only told and explained mm. but, and demonstrated, but yes. also inspired all four, I would say. I would say all four, mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, apart from a mediocre teacher. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think it was beyond a million. No, no, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and at a very right. young age, and, yes. we'll, and we'll cover some of that in our mm. uh, program today. Mm. Uh, so, what else has we got in store for the show? Well, we'll start with a uh, news roundup with some of the week's uh, top stories with Philip Gent. Uh, he's a Tory, uh, potential Tory candidate for the next election, mm. uh, and that will be followed by the Faith in Focus, where we're looking at the life and claims of the founder of the Ambi Muslim Community, the Promised Messiah. This may peace be upon him. And after the 11 o'clock news? Well, one of the many prophecies the founder of the Ambi Muslim community uh, made was uh, or, uh, is that the Almighty, uh, and and a prophecy that, the, uh, that has since been witnessed by his followers mm. and others, uh, was a prophecy of the son to be born who will be uh, remarkable in many ways, both spiritually as well as in the secular field. So Azar will be joining us to discuss this uh, and uh, to discuss what the second caliph, Azad Mizar Mahmoud uh, and Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed, actually achieved. Indeed. And uh, we will also look at the continuation of uh, persecution of the Amdi Muslim community in Pakistan uh, and why this sudden increase in recent months. Sheikh Rahman will join us 
in that regard. And for sport? Well, South will be joining us to discuss the latest in the Premiership and the England versus New Zealand match, test matches uh, with the re-emergence of the 40-year-old young James Anderson. Mm. He's doing amazingly well for his age yeah. as a fast bowler. Yeah, so, there's prospect for us as well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. 60-plus. Shh, give over. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, wonderful, Olivia. No, that, that's great. Uh, inshallah. Uh, also, the Man United game versus Newcastle, oh, yes, English yeah, Football League yeah. Cup final. Mm. Uh, re-emergence of Man U, it appears, with the Rashford mm. in hot form. Okay, inshallah, an interesting show in store for all our listeners. Anyone eager to comment or share their views views can do so by phoning 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The Voice of Islam uh, can be heard on DAB radio, mobile, or live stream it on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live all over the UK and abroad. This is the Weekend World Show with Arsene MD. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Right, we're going to start with the news review, I believe, and hopefully mm-hmm. Philip Gent is waiting on the line for us shortly. Weekend World. Let's Look find... at this week's news, views and reviews. Right, let's see what our first heading is, Ulid. Yes, it's Westminster accounts. Baroness Cox forced to declare financial interest after leak reveals links to anti-Islam activists. This is from Sky News. Yes, Baroness Cox uh, has taken funding from an American organization run by evangelical philanthropists linked to Orthodox Christian groups and anti-gay marriage campaigners, uh, a campaign. Uh, Documents also show she holds regular meetings with prominent critics of Islam. Among the documents leaked to hope, not hate, uh, are minutes of her register of her regular meetings uh, um, that uh, have been convened by Baroness Cox on the parliamentary estate and attended by prominent and often controversial critics of Islam. Baroness Cox and Lord Pearson provoked controversy in 2010 when they brought the far-right Dutch politician Geert Wilders to the UK. Mm, she's got uh, history, eh? Mm, oh, yes. <laughs> it appears. Uh, joining us this morning is the prospective candidate for the Conservative Party, hopefully, and a regular contributor on the Weekend World Show, Philip Gent. Salaam alaikum, Philip. Alaikum salam. Good morning to you. Yes, you. it is a good morning with the sun out. I, I hope it is at your part of the world as well in, 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 in Surrey. It is good. Fantastic. Uh, This news uh, on Baroness Cox forced to declare financial interests uh, after leaks reveal links to anti-Islam activists. Why is it that each time there's an anti-Islamophobic case which involves an MP, it always turns out to be a Tory member? Well, well, Baroness Cox is a crossbencher, as I'm... But but originally from the Tory party, yes. Well, well, originally from the Tory party, mm. that mm. that that's correct. But uh, the whip uh, was removed from from Baroness ah, right. Cox. Um, I believe it was Michael Howard during the term of Michael Howard, mm-hmm. uh, and so that was a number of years a number of years ago. Mm. So she has she has been sitting as a crossbencher within the House of Lords. You're quite right. She 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 was uh, involved um, 
uh, quite prominently within the Tory party, particularly in relation to education uh, and particularly in relation to right. the sort of Margaret Thatcher years. But mm. uh, she's no longer a member, uh, you know, a member of the party as such or represents the party. As right. Such, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it doesn't take away the fact that every time there is an anti-Islamophobic MP, it turns out not normally to be a, Tor- uh, a Tory member. And we even had Prime Minister jo- Boris Johnson, you know, calling Muslims letterboxes and uh, terrorists, etc., for women wearing the niqab, who never apologizes apologize for that. Well, well, um, <laughs> the so 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 you mentioned about. About Boris Johnson, mm. I think I think he 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 he, he responded to that. I, I didn't agree with what he said. Uh, I do I do know that he respects the Islamic faith. Indeed, he, he has a, a, a copy of the Quran in his study, and he, he he's certainly very respectful to His Holiness, for example, uh, as it is a and very respectful and attends and has attended the functions of the Ahmadiyya community mm. and, and being very supportive. He, he's also attended our, as Lord as Mayor of London. Yeah. Um, our charity world for peace, raising billions for causes. Mm. So he has associated himself with the Muslim community. He does not um, shy away from the fact that his ancestry is from the Islamic faith, his recent ancestry, um, his comments were ill-advised. Right. Um, which, which, which is uh, positive, and, and, and that's good. And uh, and we hear about uh, the Labour Party being anti-Semitic or had aspects of it, and it seemed that Keir Starmer, who has a Jewish wife, uh, is is uh, has done a lot to remove that uh, stigma on the Labour Party. Are the Tory parties making enough effort to weasel out the the few Islamophobes that that do exist in the party? Are they doing enough to comfort the Muslim community that the Tory party is not an Islamophobe uh, party? Well, that's a good question. Uh, There there was the Singh review, uh, Mm. which had a number of recommendations, which the party immediately uh, recognised. And, and, and sought to uh, implement the recommendations, and that 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 goes across the party's structure, and in particular uh, in relation to candidates. Uh, that candidates should be more reflective of of the of the UK uh, hmm. uh, community. Yeah. So I think I think certainly we will see. Yeah. Uh, uh, on a meritocratic basis, uh, a fairer, uh, a conservative party that reflects more fairly the individual communities uh, that reside and contribute and pay taxes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Is, is is it worrying to know that uh, we have a member of the Lords, uh, Baroness Cox, in this case, and uh, who seems to have had a history? Off the far right, uh, with the, inviting the Dutch politician Geert Wilders, who was openly an Islamophobe, very derogatory about Muslims. Um, does this, you know, what does that say about uh, the way people get promoted to these positions 
I mean, Lord is not a, a, a meager position. It's a very high-ranking position in, 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 in uh, civilian life, in uh, political <coughs> life. And we have people like that who propagate, uh, you know, phobias against communities. Yeah, yeah. Well, Baroness Cox clearly has her own agenda, mm. uh, and I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to prejudge motive or intention. Um, but Baroness Cox is a highly respected member of the Lord. She, she's also a very prominent Anglican uh, of the Third Order, and um, she holds her Christian faith very dear, which, you know, I think is fantastic mm. um, that, you know, politicians, you know, are to hold faith and are open about it. I think that's that's a fantastic thing. I, I think we should see more of that. Uh, religion seems to have gone out of uh, uh, of Westminster. It doesn't seem to be um, uh, religion and politics seem seem to be alien to one another. But I, I think there is certainly a place for people of a religious background or religious thought to to be in politics. Mm. Uh, so I think that's very positive. Um, and like I said, I I, I, I wouldn't want to prejudge. Uh, Baroness, Baroness Cox, because I don't know and I've not conversed with her. Uh, but bringing Gert Wilders into the UK, which I think, um, you know, there, there's a balance there to be struck, isn't there? You know, could it, could there be an incitement to hate? Could Gert Wilders coming to the UK cause unrest? Amongst certain communities, could he say something to the press in the UK that could incite hatred? Uh, and that's the balanced judgment uh, that has to be made. And I think on the, on the first occasion that he was invited, I think the authorities refused his entry into the UK uh, on, on those grounds. Um, and it's always, but that always has to be balanced with freedom of speech. And I think um, it's it, it behoves the Muslim community as well to to talk about the peaceful Islam. And I certainly have had a conversation with um, former UKIP leader. Uh, he has no problem with the version of Islam that the Ahmadiyya community profess. But, but, but does he believe that the Holy Prophet is, uh, is a warmonger? I, I, I'm not aware of those comments. Okay. okay. I'm not, I'm not aware of those it's, it's a trait often given to Islam that uh, the Holy Quran, and, uh, by the right wing, of course, the right wing uh, uh, of the far right. Sorry, William. Uh, yes, uh, Philip, don't you think it's a, it's a sign of bad judgment on Baroness Cox to bring somebody like Gate Wilders here who's not going to contribute positively to anything we may be discussing, but negatively in view of the the uh, the opinions he holds. Uh, do you think that's that's something that is of con- should be of concern? And, and he was in the news several times, and uh, in that controversy, as Walid points out. Hmm. Like I said, uh, the media. We obviously have to consider uh, how the media um, uh, would would sort of blow Gert Wilders coming into the UK out of all proportion, mm-hmm. amplify his message without uh, sufficient balance. And, and I think 
more needs to be done by Muslim communities in the UK to balance out the, the distorted and the politicized, the jihadist, Islamic view, which is which is not the true message of Islam. Inviting Geert Wilders was probably a way of Baroness Cox getting this on the agenda, uh, because she, I know she's trying to put a bill through Parliament. Uh, I think 2012, it sort of didn't get it didn't go through the second reading, the House, but um, to protect Muslim women from Sharia law. So Baroness Cox. Uh, has an agenda and so and, and a motive, one motive and one agenda that I, I'm aware of. And um, this was probably a way of amplify, amplifying her uh, reasoning for trying to progress that bill through through Parliament. But you know, to use guilt Wilders as a credible advocate would be stretching credulity a little too mm. far. He, he's, not, he's not a serious, you know, he's an extreme politician and I don't, don't think, you know, would be a credible proponent to bring it to the uh, Yeah, and, and Geert Wilders is not the topic of our subject. It was Baroness Cox, so, but never mind. Let's move on to, thank, thank you for responding to those questions. Uh, let's look at the next story. This is in the Telegraph, the very Tory paper. Judith Woods, who write the, uh, wrote the article under the heading, If Justice is Blind, Shemaima Begum Must Be Brought Back to Britain. I mean, this is from a Tory paper, quite a strong heading. What, what, what does Judith Woods say? Yes, uh, she goes on to say in the Telegraph, how politically expedient to pretend that having been stripped of her citizenship, she doesn't exist. Begum born in London is very much alive, and whatever this government would like us to believe by virtue of her abandonment, her banishment, she remains very much our problem. Yes, she says, and she continues, this week, the Special Immigration Appeals Commission decided to dismiss the 23-year-old's appeal against losing her passport. Her lawyers had argued that when the Home Secretary, Sajid Javed at the time, revoked Begum's citizenship, he had not taken into account that she was a trafficked person. Despite their finding, the Appeals Commission concluded there was credible suspicion that she had been trafficked to Syria for sexual exploitation, but ruled that it was not enough to overturn the original decision. So what next? Under international law, is it a crime to make someone stateless? So, um, your views on that decision, uh, Philip? Yes. Um, so, so as, as you quite rightly say, you know, the... the um, Home Secretary's decision uh, has been upheld uh, by the Special Immigration Appeals Commission. Um, with this commission deals with matters of, of such matters involving national security. Um, in, in relation to the statelessness of Shamima Begum, mm. I understand that uh, she was born in the UK um, to somebody who had uh, a Bangladeshi father who had settled status in, in the UK and, and that meant that she uh, was eligible for British citizenship but not only British citizenship but also Bangladeshi mm -hmm. citizenship. So she is a citizen 
of both uh, or, or was a citizen of, of Britain and is currently a citizen of, 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 of Bangladesh. Now, uh, uh, that's not correct. She's not a citizen of Bangladesh. Bangladesh uh, refused to entertain an application for her to apply for citizenship. And she has never been to Bangladesh. I, I, I think that's I think that's questionable on on the grounds of um, Section Five of the Citizen Act, Citizenship Act, um, which was quoted uh, when the Home Secretary initially put this decision uh, forward, and indeed the Bangladeshi government did respond at the time when they said that look, if she comes to, to Bangladesh. Uh, Given she was involved in terrorist activity, then the death penalty would apply, and that there would be no no reason for them to to go to that length to dissuade her from coming, unless there there was a possibility of her uh, entering as a citizen. I would say, and so they kind of dissuaded her from coming so with, this, with that statement. Yeah, it, so, it, it, so, so this yeah. was a child who was born in Britain, has a right to be a British British citizen and chose to be a British citizen, chose not to go to the place of birth of her parents, uh, and yet the UK, uh, it seemed, breaking international law by making her stateless. Um, uh, you think that, I, that that's viable? I, 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 I don't think she is stateless there, though. I, I do think this is a legal point, though, mm. that, that will... And, it, it, you know, in Shamima Begum's next um, uh, appeal could be to the Court of Appeal, and she's free to, to appeal this uh, at the Court of Appeal. It, it is very much a legal question, um, and um, the UK... Um, has signed up to the international charter of on the reduction of statelessness mm. um, and in UK law um, does in, does does provide the possibility of taking citizenship away under certain circumstances right. so you know it is a question of interpretation and there's a moral judgment here as well mm. But not only a moral judgment, but a judgment in relation to security of the country. Yeah. Um, uh, and I and I hear what what you say in relation to that. You know, she was a victim, a child victim uh, of trafficking. Yeah. And I mean, there, there was a case. There was a case which the BBC reported uh, and other news channels. Uh, charges of terror offences against Rhiannon Rudd. She was a white British girl. Charges of terror offences against Rhiannon Rudd, then 15, were dropped after evidence proved that she had been groomed online by the right-wing extremists. So is it a case of, with Shamima, uh, Shamima that she's either the wrong skin colour or that she belongs to the wrong far-right or the extreme terrorist groups, i.e. she's a Muslim terrorist, so-called, and not a right-wing uh, Racist group. Well, I, I think I think clearly, you know, it's it's on a case by case basis, and the intelligence services who were well entrenched within the ISIS network 
would have gathered information specific to um, Shamika Begum, and that would have been presented to the, the commission um, and, and, and would then have been taken into consideration. And now, those facts are not necessarily divulged publicly, given it's a matter of national security, but um, there would have been a basis uh, which, 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 which meant that the, the decision of the Home Secretary continues to be upheld. And so, you know, we're both sort of, we, we can't generalise, I don't think, hmm. in, in this matter. There, there would have been some, some form of evidence, some evidence out there, which um, has, has meant that the judgment stays as is. Yeah. And I, I, again, I wouldn't want to compare the two, the two, the two cases. But, but Philip, do you think it is right that if she does pose a danger, then we are um, satisfied in that danger being um, current in the, where she is and not be uh, brought here? Because, basically unchecked, yeah? Basically unchecked. Yes, where because, she is, yeah. because she she is the product of our, our society. I mean, she has been... She's born here, she's raised here, she went to school here. Uh, she was allegedly groomed uh, in this country. Isn't it irresponsible for us to um, uh, to saddle this problem to other countries rather than deal with it ourselves and bring her here, put her on, on trial, uh, maybe even re-educate her, but um, to take responsibility for uh, the, the errors or the miscreants that we produce? And, and it's almost a case of putting the head in the sand, like an ostrich, mm. isn't it, for the British government, that that problem is put somewhere else, you know, when the problem really was from here. Mm. <laughs> Certainly she, she was a product of, of, of the UK. She, she would have been influenced while she, she was the UK. And you make, you make, you make a fair argument that um, if, if that was the case, then um, surely uh, it's on it's on the UK to try and reform, and, and and that that argument can be made strongly, and that argument can be made quite persuasively. However, again, I would refer back to the intelligence, and um, you know she is 23 now, um, and that may have overriding uh, implications, which, uh, however strongly. You know that the arguments are made for well, they to, to bring it back um, would override uh, uh, override that you know that kind of action. Mm. Uh, Philip, uh, time's running out on our side, unfortunately. But thank you very much for your honest opinions and answers. And as always, uh, it's a pleasure having you on the show and uh, giving your. Uh, uh, truthful uh, responses to the tough questions we try to put to you. Thank you very much. Does he, does he think, uh, Philip, before you go, do you think Tories yeah. have a chance in the next election? <laughs> well, we're 20, 22 points... Sorry? <laughs> we're 22 points... Uh, behind, uh, behind. <laughs> We are. There, there's a narrow path to victory. Ah, OK. 
yes, always the optimist. Yeah, that's right. We, we'll, we'll be discussing those nearer the elections. I'm sure we'll have we'll have Philip and others joining us more regularly on those subjects. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Philip. Thank you. Thank you. God as bless. always, God, God bless to you as well. Right, really, let's yep. move on to our uh, faith in focus. Uh, we're going to start with the verse of the Holy Quran, chapter 62, verse 3. Allah says in chapter 62, verse 3, He it is who has raised among the unlettered people a messenger from among themselves who recites unto them his signs and purifies them and teaches them the book and wisdom although they had been before in manifest misguidance. Well, in the earlier editions of the program, we discussed uh, this verse, hmm. ex- gave the explanation why this was relevant to the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, uh, the Mizar Glam Ahmed, uh, some aspects of it. And uh, so we are now continuing um, that how his life, uh, the pro- how the promised Messiah in his life, how he defended Islam, brought many admirers, uh, mm-hmm. attracted many admirers. He formed a community and opposition to his claims grew as as he became more popular. So we will now examine today what these claims were and the reason for those oppositions. Yes. And we know that uh, all prophets have say, faced opposition when they mm-hmm. come. Uh, people are ready for that. Right. So the first question to you on this topic, Ulid, mm. at this time uh, he took the first Pledge of Allegiance in 1889. That's when he made the claim, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Hazrat Mizar Ghulam Ahmed, peace be upon him, had all, uh, only claimed to be a reformer. Mm. But he further claims, soon afterwards, uh, a further claim. So what mm. What? What were the, were the what were both yeah. claims? Well, yes, you're right. Um, he made further claims uh, after the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, that was in 1889, like you said. And uh, later, uh, in 1890, apparently, he wrote an Urdu book. Uh, it's called Fatih Islam, Victory of Islam, and a second book entitled Thawzeh Maram, both of which were published in 1891. Mm-hmm. So he may have written it in 1890, published in 1891, uh, in which he claimed that on the basis of divine revelation, he was the Messiah and the Mahdi. So these are the claims. He's the Messiah and the Mahdi, right. uh, as promised in the uh, in the scriptures, in various religious scriptures. One of the revelations that he based uh, this assertion on, this claim on, was translated as, well, it's quite uh, clear and categorical. Uh, God says to him, we have made you the Messiah, son of Mary. So, you know, these were very bold, bold claims mm. based on very uh, s- strong, uh, undeniable revelations, uh, communications from God Almighty, as he would, he would claim. Right. He explained that the prophecies about the second advent of Jesus did not mean that the Israelite prophet himself will come down from the heavens, if this were really possible, then Elias or Idris would have also descended physically. Is it Elias or Elijah? But uh, Elijah. Elijah, yes. Would have descended physically from uh, the heavens as a forerunner to the advent of Jesus Christ. But it was John the Baptist that in reality had come in his spirit. So he further explained that on the basis of the Holy Quran and Hadith, 
the hadith being the uh, sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, the Mahdi was not a different individual, distinct from the uh, promised Messiah. But both Messiahhood and Medihood were to be vested in the same person. And he found support for this in sayings of the Holy Prophet. And one of these is that um, where his, uh, the Holy Prophet is reported to have said, it is just possible that he who lives you might meet Jesus, the son of Mary, who is the Mahdi, and a just judge, he will break the cross and kill the swine. So here is quite clearly the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is equating Jesus with the Mahdi, uh, conveying the message that they are one and the same person. And in fact, there is another saying of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, where uh, again, it's a very categorical statement. It says, there is no Mahdi but Isa, la Mahdi illa Isa. So uh, this is uh, these are also the words of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. So Mahdi literally means one who guides. Uh, so thus the reformer that was predicted uh, was to come in the spirit of Jesus, uh, the Messiah, to guide humanity, to, to serve as a, uh, as a guide. So that's basically his claim. Right. And uh, so this was made in 1889. Uh, so this is in 1891, it was published. Right, right. In, uh, okay. yeah. But prior to this claim, uh, this is an ad-lib question here. Mm. Prior to this claim, many Muslim clerics and leaders had urged him to claim to be the reformer, but he never did. Yes. Why was that? So he he said quite clearly because uh, these people, these admirers, in recognizing the service that he was uh, making for the cause of Islam, felt that he was certainly something special. Hmm. And he was a reformer, maybe even the Mahdi. Uh, but he resisted making any such claim because, quite clearly, uh, he, uh, God had not instructed him to do so. And you were emphasizing earlier that he had got, when he received the strong revelation, mm. only then did he claim. Absolutely. So he resisted. I mean, the prophets by nature are very humble, mm. uh, and uh, they not uh, they do not themselves believe they are. Uh, they are so. Uh, how can I say so elevated as to as to be given these kinds of responsibilities, but it's only when God tells them mm. uh, and tells them emphatically uh, that they then uh, publicize uh, right. this. And and you were mentioning about the the meaning of Mahdi, the one who guides, mm. uh, comes from the word Hadi, which is the source of of guidance, which is mm-hmm. Allah or the God Almighty. And Mahdi, the one who takes the information from the source and passes it on. Or, yes. And Something new I've learned. Also. Thank <laughs> you very much. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay, no? okay. And hence why mm. he would never say anything of his own accord until he got that guidance from yeah. God Almighty. No, okay. Very, very true. No, thank you. Yes. Okay, good. What was the view of the other Muslims of this time? And we just touched on that. Yeah. Uh, and, and why did they oppose Hazrat Mizar Muhammad, peace be upon him, on the stand that he took? Well, they, they did not believe he was the Messiah or the Mahdi. Mm because they had a different concept as to what uh, the second advent of uh, Jesus would be like. And it was more spectacular or fanciful understanding, uh, because they contended that uh, Jesus, peace be upon him, um, uh, had physically uh, ascended to heaven alive at the end of the incident of the cross. Mm -hmm. 
and was going to descend physically from the heavens back to earth to do his work. Now, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, uh, um, uh, peace be upon him, proved from the Bible, uh, the Holy Quran, and the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that Jesus Christ had survived the ordeal of the cross, died a natural death, and was not going to return. It's uh, not going to return in uh, in uh, in person mm-hmm. back uh, to the earth, but he was going to return in spirit. And Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed claimed he had come in that spirit of uh, Jesus, peace be upon him, um, in order to reform mankind. Now, the misunderstanding that arose uh, among the Muslims was partly due to the Christian belief. So, uh, Christian domination of uh, of the world at that time, or for a long time, uh, meant that there was some kind of gravitation towards uh, uh, Christian belief, and the Christian belief uh, asserted that Jesus had risen bodily to heaven following the crucifixion. But um, um, they also, these Muslims, in uh, contending that Jesus would, was physically up in, in the heavens and would uh, descend, they found support for their view in the Holy Quran. And one verse in particular that they do support from is found in chapter 4, and uh, it reads, I mean, when uh, this passage is, uh, is, I won't read the whole passage, just describe what it is. It, it talks about um, the, uh, the Jews uh, wondering whether they had uh, slain the, uh, the Messiah, Jesus, uh, son of Mary, when he had been uh, put on the cross, or whether something else had happened. So the Holy Quran says that uh, uh, they are in confusion, they have not arrived at any uncertainty. And then it says, uh, Allah exalted Jesus uh, to himself, and Allah is mighty, wise. Now the other Muslims take from this that uh, Jesus was physically exalted, physically raised uh, to heaven. This is what this verse is saying. Um, that when it says that Allah exalted Jesus uh, to himself, he is in fact being raised physically up into the heavens. But when you think about this, it is a very preposterous uh, conclusion to arrive at because it assumes, and this is very critical, that Allah is in a fixed position somewhere high in the heavens. It's a very childish concept, Mm. really. Uh, And uh, Jesus has been physically raised to that particular point where Allah is in a fixed position, when in reality, according to Muslim belief, Allah is omnipresent, he's everywhere. To think that this is uh, what the verse means doesn't make sense. What does make sense is if the exaltation, the elevation, is considered and deemed to be a spiritual one. So this ordeal, it can be argued, that Jesus Christ went through with patience and fortitude for the sake of God, of being put on the cross and suffering, drew him spiritually closer to the Almighty and exalted his, his status to, uh, as far as um, Allah is concerned. And this is what is meant by the verse, not what um, the other Muslims are contending this verse to convey. Right. So how do we know that 
the Muslims of the earlier era, before the advent of Promised Messiah, Mr. Glamour's claims, mm. that uh, they believed that Jesus uh, you know, was uh, not physically been ascended, uh, mm. d- d- because surely these clerics are b- basing yes. that on the previous yes. uh, recordings, yes. aren't they? Yes, this is a very good question. Um, well, the Holy Quran uh, clearly says that Jesus uh, died a natural death, we would contend. Mm-hmm. And there are some, I think it was the founder of the Ambiyam's community, Hazrat Ghulam, who produced some 30 verses to that effect from the Holy Quran right. to show that uh, um, that Jesus uh, has in fact succumbed, like everyone else, to a natural death. Mm. Um, now this, I just want to go, with, uh, I won't go through all 30, but just one or two. <laughs> Uh, and one of them is, uh, you know, this is in chapter 3, verse 56. It says that, uh, um, uh, I, G- O Jesus, I will cause thee, to, this is Allah saying, O Jesus, I will cause thee to die a natural death, and will exalt thee to myself, and will clear thee from the charge of those who disbelieve, and will place those who follow thee above those who disbelieve until the day of resurrection. Then to me shall be your return, and I will judge between you concerning that wherein you differ. So the word here about I will cause you to die that is being used in the Holy Quran uh, is, um, it refers, it definitely refers to death. It's not a spiritual, it's a physical death. It means that God takes the soul away of the man. In this case, it appears to it appear, applies to Jesus, which in turn means that he had passed away. So this is one verse. Then there's another verse about, uh, um, this is in chapter 5, verse 76. Uh, Jesus, son of, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger. Surely messengers like unto him have indeed passed away before him. And his mother was a truthful woman. They both used to eat, used to eat food. Mm. So it is clearly stated that both Jesus and his mother no longer eat food as understood from the Arabic Word. I mean the Arabic word. I mean this is these are uh, intricate technicalities. But the Arabic word for uh, I think for for eating has been used kana, which is for the past tense. So just as Mary no longer eats food and has died, the same applies to Jesus. And then there is uh, we granted not everlasting life to any human being before you. If then you should die, shall they live here forever? This is in chapter twenty-one thirty-five. The verse explains that all people are subject to only one way of uh, uh, God. No one has escaped death, nor will anyone escape death in the future. Everyone gets old and eventually dies, and Jesus, peace be upon him, is not an exception to this rule. But the the last one is, and this is a crucial verse, uh, that can be used to confirm the view of the early Muslims. Mm. What did they actually think? Um, uh, is uh, the verse that was used, uh, and is a famous verse, that uh, when the companions were stunned uh, with the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, Hazrat Abu Bakr, the the successor of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, uh, said the following to bring them to their senses. So this is in a state uh, when the uh, Muslims have just learned of the demise the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, they are in a great shock as to what has taken place. So Hazrat Bakr tries to consolidate uh, their, their feelings, and he says that whoever worships Muhammad, Muhammad has died. And whoever worships Allah, Allah is living and does not die. Allah says uh, in the Holy Quran, and Muhammad is only a messenger, verily all messengers have passed away before him, 
If then he die or be slain, will you turn back on your heels? So this is in chapter 3, verse 145, that uh, Abu Bakr is quoting. And the point that needs to be made, because you ask what was the view of the early Muslims when it came to the position of Jesus uh, and whether he was alive or not, the point here is that the companions are distraught that the Holy Prophet has passed away and want to cleave, uh, to cling to anything that can, which can uh, get them to hold on to anything that can disprove that sad reality. But when Hazrat Abu Bakr quotes the verse that says all messengers have passed away before him, not one of them says that Jesus Christ has not died. And maybe this is also the case of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that just like he has not died but ascended to heaven, the Holy Prophet has ascended to heaven. So nobody says that. Mm-hmm. Right? In other words, they knew what the position of Jesus Christ was, that he had died a natural death. Had they had it been current in that community that Jesus is alive in heaven, then they would also have no doubt said, look, maybe the same thing. The Holy Prophet has not died. He's actually done the same thing that Jesus uh, has done. Exactly. Yeah. That, the colors, you know, when you're in a, in a state of grief, mm. you want to uh, catch on. Yeah, hold on, hold to, on to anything <laughs> that desperately. Will, yeah, you know. yes. But and, no, and one, no one, no one, yeah, no one says so. No one pipes no. up. Is anything remote like that? All except that uh, because all messengers have uh, passed, passed away, before the Holy Prophet mm. is no exception, he too has, suf- phys- has suffered physical death. Mm. Must be that Jesus, as far as their belief was concerned, had also died. It was the right time to raise that issue, and, and no one did. And, and I, I believe there's another verse of the Holy Quran where the, the uh, people of the time say, if you are tr- a truthful prophet, bring a book like this from the heavens, mm. then we'll believe in you. Mm. And the uh, Holy Prophet ﷺ responds, as mentioned in the Quran, that if God had so wished, he would have made angels as prophets. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, so at that time, the, the, those people could have said, mm. well, if Jesus can go up there, why can't you go up yeah. there? Yeah. But there's no mention of that. Absolutely. So yeah. these re-establish that belief. Mm. Mm. Put, mm. Puts it. Kicks it into touch, yes, basically, yes, any argument yes. in that regard. Yes, you've been watching rugby. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, the view of Jesus Christ, uh, peace be upon him, being raised to heaven in a long-held view of Christianity? But Hazem is a grand peace be upon him, proved from the Bible that this cannot be true. How did he do that? Well, this is one of the remarkable features of Hazem is the founder of the Omnisphere He was truly ingenious. Uh, he uh, not only had in-depth understanding of the Holy Quran, but he uh, progressed to uh, study other religious books as well uh, and study them in great depth. And this is a remarkable achievement, uh, something that even many of us these days uh, would uh, do not accomplish. We, we may perhaps, in addition to the Holy Quran, study the Bible, but we would not go and study, say, the the Buddhist books mm. or the mm. uh, or the Hindu books. But the Holy Prop- the uh, Promised Messiah, Messiah yeah. went and did that because he wanted to um, establish what he believed was the superiority of Islam. So, in order to establish that, and he because wanted, he grew up uh, in an environment where Islam was being attacked from many angles, absolutely. So, so it was yeah. being attacked yeah. by by Hindu clerics. And it was certainly by Christian missionaries, yes. Um, And they had a a plan to actually convert 
large populations right. of, uh, of of uh, the indigenous populations in uh, in that in, uh, in British India mm. to to Christianity. So um, he said, uh, or he concluded, that it was clear from the Gospels, so not from the Holy, just the Holy Quran. He was, he established that it was clear from the Gospels that Jesus, uh, peace be upon him, was uh, was put on the cross, but survived the ordeal of the cross. And there are books, uh, or the books, the book he wrote, and the books that followed from that. Uh, list many proofs as to why uh, Jesus must have survived the ordeal of the cross. One of the main reasons that he put across was that he was only on the cross for about three to four hours at the most, and for death to occur uh, through crucifixion, it uh, took much, much longer than that, days even, before uh, death uh, overcame and though the victims of those who are on the cross. Now, he was put on the cross late on Friday and had to be taken down in the evening out of respect for the beginning of the Sabbath. So to accelerate death uh, of those taken down from the cross in this way, because it was disrespectful to have anybody on the, on the cross on the Sabbath. But if somebody was put on a Friday, they hadn't died, then what they would have done is that they brought them down from the cross and broken their legs to accelerate death. And this was certainly carried out, and the gospel says so, uh, for the two others hanging on the cross with Jesus. But crucially, the legs of Jesus were not broken, and this is, I mean, this is very clear from all four gospels. Mm. Um, and uh, instead, the body was given to uh, a companion of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ, uh, Joseph Arimathea, and there were medicinal substances that were used to uh, treat uh, Jesus. Now, all of this, and there were so many other proofs, uh, firmly proved that Jesus, and proved from the Bible that Jesus was put on the cross alive and came down from the cross alive. And uh, these proofs uh, were then um, consolidated by the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, uh, in uh, his book, Jesus in India, and uh, other books have since been written that confirm that particular thesis. Okay. What about, uh, he wrote an epoch-making book, or Jesus in India. What relevance is that, that Jesus had been to India? How did that help mm. Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's claim? Um, mm. Or, uh, or what, what was the significance of Jesus being there? Well, um, um, researched the life of Jesus uh, and particularly the life of Jesus after his survival from the cross and if he did not die on the cross the point was if he did not die on the cross and was raised and was not raised to heaven where did he go hmm. uh, and the promised Messiah explained that Jesus uh, in the Bible had said that he had not come but for the lost tribes of Israel so at the time of uh, Jesus, there were just two uh, tribes, two Israelite, two Jewish tribes in Palestine. The remaining ten had dispersed uh, to the east. And this is where Jesus traveled, uh, uh, taking his message to those tribes of Israel. And he was successful. Uh, he finally ended up in the north of the Indian subcontinent in Kashmir, where he's buried. Uh, apparently, I was listening to one uh, uh, scholar of the Amdi Muslim community. He, he was saying that uh, the location of his tomb was actually revealed 
to the Holy Prophet, uh, to the promised Messiah by God himself. So the tomb, he, uh, uh, the promised Messiah argued, was in was in Khania Street in Sirinagar. And uh, I don't know whether you've been to it, but I know a lot of people that have been to it. Uh, and uh, this in a nutshell is basically uh, uh, what he claimed in his book, Jesus in India. And, uh, and those uh, listeners mm. uh, who are not familiar with it or want to get more familiar with it, then uh, they should access that book. I think it's on, available online. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so much more to discuss, discuss and we're discussing Jesus uh, at this moment in time. And then there's the other claim of the Mahdi. Mm. And uh, I think the, in our next show, we can cover most of those and other yes, prophecies relating certainly. to it. On on this, uh, uh, by the way, question to your answer. <laughs> mm. No, I haven't been to Khania Street. Oh. I haven't been to India, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, something on uh, which I wish to do. You haven't visited Taj Mahal? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> my father has, but not me. But okay. something I would I would like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter tried to go there, and then because her mother is from Pakistan, she didn't get the visa. Oh, yeah. uh, there oh. was restrictions as well. So uh-huh. Anyway, uh, let's see what happens in the future. But on on this uh, topic on Jesus, uh, the promised Messiah wrote extensively on the proofs relating to Jesus not being dead, uh, not going having ascended. Sorry, yes. having died on the cross. Yes. Now, some Muslims believe that Jesus wasn't even put on the cross. Mm. Someone else like was appeared mm. to to be like him. Mm. So there's that argument. How do we have a counter argument to that? How can that not be the case? No, yes, uh, they also derive that from the from the Holy Quran, uh, and they derive that argument. But there is a verse that uh, he was, uh, and I, I quoted it, uh, in fact, from what I remember. Mm. But uh, it it appeared to them that uh, he had died. So it is from from that that they they derive the uh, the conclusion that it was not him who was put on the cross, but uh, Judas, who looked like looked Jesus, like, okay. uh, and he was he was actually put on the cross. But so, but Judas never said, "I'm not Jesus," did he? No, there's no record a, of that. This is a, yeah. so there's no grounding for yeah. that argument either. Then. No, so no. he never protested. No. He never no. he never said that. I mean, this is I mean, in, both in the Bible mm. and. And the Quran, there's no mention mm. of any uh, protest being raised by the person who is being put on the cross that mm. he's not Jesus. Yeah. All right. I mean, if if if, uh, if someone was listening to our show mm. and then they phoned in that your presenter Asan he said mm. this on the show when it mm. wasn't me and you, what mm. might have been you who said mm. it, not me. Mm. The first thing I I'll argue is that hang on, no, it wasn't me. It was my presenter. Yeah, I, I would plead innocence. <laughs> yes, right? absolutely. But yeah. but it appears Judas did not plead no, innocence. No. There's no ground for no. that. Okay. So the yes, the verse was in chapter four, verse one five eight, um, um, that uh, they they slew him not, but he was made to appear to them like one crucified. Wow. So that. Is yeah, what they catch, I, I don't know how you conclude that yeah. it was someone else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, uh, we're coming up to the news. Really, thank you very much. You. Very insightful. Mm. I think we're getting to the crux of the claims of the promised yes. Messiah, yes. and these are interesting discussions yeah. to be had. Uh, we're now going to the 11 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Just been called for Donald The decision taken to join the common market has been the reversed. The should call a general election. Order. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister.
behind the headlines. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and blessings to our listeners and welcome back to the Weekend World Show with Asim Amzi. Uh, the views on the show are those of individuals and guests. Uh, we are now coming to our next segment of the show, uh, the Behind the Headlines. So we're going to start off with the verse of the Holy Quran, chapter 30, verse 23. <laughs> Allah says, and among his signs in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your tongues and colors, in that surely are signs of those who possess knowledge. Uh, Many people come with knowledge, which Mm -hmm. Allah is ordained on, but there are few who are predicted to achieve that. So uh, let's read an extract of the prophecy of the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, Hazrat Mizaglam Ahmed, mm-hmm. may peace be upon him, about the prophecy about uh, a blessed son that he will be vouchsafed. Mm-hmm. So following is an extract of the prophecy regarding the Muslim Maud, as he's called, the promised son mm-hmm. uh, of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, on, which was vouchsafed on the 20th of February on 1886. Uh, Hazrat Mizaglam Ahmed wrote what Allah had revealed to him. Mm. Rejoice, therefore, that a handsome and pure boy will be bestowed on thee. Thou wilt receive a bright youth who will be of thy seed and will be of thy progeny. So very clearly that he will be the son of the promised Messiah. Mm. What else does the prophecy say? Well, it says that a handsome and pure boy will come as your guest. His name is Emmanuel and Bashir. He has been invested with the Holy Spirit and he'll be free from all impurity. He is the light of Allah. Blessed is he who comes from heaven. He shall be accompanied by grace, uh, Fazl, we shall arrive with him. He will be characterized with grandeur, greatness, and, and wealth. The prophecy continues. He will come into the world and will heal many of their disorder through his messianic qualities and through the blessings of the Holy Spirit. He is the word of Allah of for Allah's mercy and honor have equipped him with the world of majesty. He will be extremely intelligent and understanding and will be meek of heart and will be filled with secular and spiritual knowledge. He will convert three into four. Prophet Messiah says, I'm, it's unclear what this meaning is. And then the last part of the prophecy. Well, the last part, it says that it is Monday, a blessed Monday, sun, delight of heart, high-ranking, noble, a manifestation of the first and the last, a manifestation of the true and the high, as if Allah has descended from heaven. His advent will be greatly blessed and will be a source of manifestation of divine majesty. Behold, a light comes, a light anointed by God with the perfume of his pleasure. We shall pour our spirit into him and he will be sheltered under the shadow of God. He will grow rapidly in stature and will be the means of procuring the release of those held in bondage. His fame will spread to the ends of the earth and peoples will be blessed through him. He will then be raised to his spiritual station in heaven. This is a matter decreed. Indeed, a very powerful 
mm. prophecy, and uh, we'll be discussing with Azza shortly. Uh, but Azza Muslim, the second caliph, the promised son, also visited London. Mm. Um, and uh, there's a short clip about that visit to London. Okay. Let's hear this. The Evening Standard. Saturday, August 23rd. His Holiness, the Khalifa Tul Masih, the head of the Ahmadiyya movement in the Islam, who has arrived in London with about a dozen secretaries, is now installed in a suite of rooms at Chesham Place, Belgrave Square. He explained the object of his mission westward. I will remain in this country for about nine weeks. I left Guardian on the 12th of July. Here I propose to take the opportunity, prior to the Wembley Conference, to convene a preliminary conference of religious thinkers and those interested in social and political problems in order to ascertain how far religion might affect those aspects of men's lives. I saw in a vision that I was standing on a pulpit in the city of London and was setting forth the truth of Islam in the English language in a very well-reasoned address. Today, many people came to have an audience with Hazur, and, despite not feeling too well, Hazur granted them an audience and preached the message of Islam. Hazur spent a great deal of time preaching and guiding Miss Dean and her sister before taking the oath of initiation. Hazur believes that in these Western countries, Islam will spread at a rapid pace through women. In between those clips from the newspapers was the prophecy by the promised Messiah about his message being spread to white nations and the arrival of the Muslim out was one of those uh, signs being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Uh, joining us uh, from Kent is Azar, as is a regular contributor to our show and gives an insight on both political and uh, religious matters, so both Secular and spiritual, how <laughs> you could say, as the prophecy on the Muslim mouth, one, one could say. Mm. Uh, as a alaikum. Wa alaikum as wa rahmatullah. Jazakallah for joining us once again. Uh, as a, first of all, just, uh, just to kick off, uh, how old was Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed when he was elected Khalifa? Yes, he was in 1914, he was elected and he was only 25 years of age, obviously um, he was elected on the death of the first Khalifa and uh, Hazrat Al-Hajj Maulwi Nuruddin Razialanho. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him. So this election was, uh, you know, this was an elected because the uh, the Khalifa in Ahmadiyya Islam is an elected institution. Uh, but this is remarkable how he achieved uh, uh, to be elected at the age of 25 because his formal schooling was minimal because he suffered so much uh, from a number of complaints, mm. uh, an eye complaint, a liver complaint, and his attendance at school was uh, was uh, rather uh, patchy, shall we say, uh, mainly because of poor health. And once the maths teacher complained that his attendance was very poor to the promised Messiah, uh, may peace be upon him. The promised Messiah replied, 
not to worry because uh, Allah Almighty will take care of his education. This is obviously a reflection of the promised Messiah's total reliance and confidence in Allah Almighty who had prophesied such a grand prophecy which you just uh, read out. Mm. So although his uh, 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 relig- uh, his secular education was minimal, yet he, became, he was elected, and uh, obviously we know that his achievements were great, and we, we'll be going into those Indeed. after. And in fact, if I can just touch on one more thing. You, you mentioned the previous caliph, the first caliph, Malwi Nuruddin, Mawli uh, Nuruddin himself uh, spent a lot of time uh, educating Mr. Bashir Mahmoud Ahmed, particularly in the in the qualities and the pearls that were to be obtained from the Quran, uh, because he himself was a highly intellectual and knowledgeable person. But when he was elected Khalifa, at the, the Mizar Bashiruddin was around eighteen years of age, and Mawli Nuruddin had even said then that why are you making me the Khalifa? Make Bashir your Khalifa. So there was high regard for his uh, personality even at a very young age. Yes, indeed. Uh, so he was a remarkable individual, very well, um, uh, I mean, very well mannered, and uh, all that you can expect of a religious person. But obviously, he had uh, great religious knowledge as well. He had been, in, as you say, been tutored by the first caliph, Hazrat uh, Al-Hajj Malvi Nuruddin uh, 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 and not only in the Quran, but also in the Hadith, Bukhari especially, in which the first caliph of Ahmadiyyat Islam, Razialanho, was uh, an expert, who, uh, very well read, uh, and but he did give a a, a pearl of advice to the um, to the to Hazrat uh, uh, Muslim out, which is uh, well at that time it was Mia uh, Bashiruddin mm. uh, that uh, you know don't ask me so many questions you should try to study them yourself and reflect upon them. So obviously he realized that the young uh, gentleman could uh, w- was well equipped to carry on the studies himself. Right. I, I'm just going to bring Waleed there very quickly because he's the editor of the Ahmadiyya Bulletin. Mm. Uh, Mr. Bashir Ahmed, when he was before his Khilafat, uh, started some magazines and uh, mm. edit, edited some magazines. Uh, can you just uh, throw well, some light on that? There was uh, the Tashizul Azhan that he started. This is uh, a magazine for youngsters. Right. Uh, and and uh, the whole purpose was to promote the uh, teachings of Islam and uh, to raise the the moral standard uh, of uh, the the, uh, the readership. Mm. I'm not sure about Al Fazl. It was started by him. Whether it was started uh, during uh, his years before Caliphate oh. or afterwards, right. but from what I what I seem to remember that it may have been before it was started, perhaps in 1913, mm-hmm. um, uh, again, uh, with the permission of uh, the Mawlwi Right. And, and that's the magazine which, mm. which is still, the uh, yeah. newspaper still, yeah, still uh, running. Uh, yeah. still running. Right, well, uh, sorry, back to you. Sorry about that. Uh, it was something I wanted to 
learn a little bit more about. Uh, there were many elders amongst the companions of the Promised Messiah and very learned ones at that. Uh, Muhammad Ali had translated the Holy Quran in English as well. So they were very uh, highly learned individuals. There must have been some who may have desired or had an expectation that one day they should become the caliph. So when they saw a young man being elected, was there any sort of uh, uh, dissent from any of them? Well, it was not so much that they wanted to be caliph themselves, but that they wanted to do, do away with the office of caliphate. This was the real problem. Right, right. And an existential threat to the uh, uh, office of caliphate because... Uh, Two of them were very revered and very well respected, if I can just mention their names. Khwaja Kamaluddin Razialanho uh, and Muhammad Ali Razialanho. We say Razialanho, obviously, because they are companions of the Promised Messiah So the, um, they were of the opinion that the Sadaran Jumun should be, because it was democratic, you know, in those days there was a great uh, uh, phase of, uh, of democratic movements, and they thought that the Sadr Anjuman was uh, a democratic, uh, democratically uh, elected, and they should take over. But they failed to realize that, in fact, spiritual knowledge, you know, prophets are not democratic. Prophets are uh, uh, appointed by God Almighty, and so are the caliphs. It is not a democratic institution in that respect. Mm. Uh, although the prophets are elected by the, you know, by the college of electorate, uh, but they thought that because all the decisions rested with the caliph, um, so this was the great uh, institutional threat. Uh, but the jamaat, or the majority of the jamaat, was uh, community. In other words, jamaat in uh, case of the community was, yeah, yeah. was of the opinion that no, it should be a caliph and that Mia Sahib as he was then known, later to be called Hazrat Muslim Aud or Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad Anhu, was the uh, preeminent uh, candidate and there was no doubt in the minds of the majority and they elected Mia Saab. There was a great clamor uh, for his uh, election and this is what happened. And unfortunately, those elders whom you refer to in your introduction they, many of them, uh, were part of a splinter group, which is uh, called the Lahori Group, and they set up headquarters in uh, in Lahore. And uh, in fact, when Hazrat uh, Muslim uh, came, uh, it was a very difficult time for him, uh, but he managed. And uh, uh, so the Lahore Group, unfortunately. Uh, I think we know what their uh, outcome has been, what the end result of their efforts have been, but uh, it has to be emphasized that although the elders, as you refer to them, and many of them were prominent uh, members, uh, very highly uh, high-ranking, uh, although they, they defected to the Lahore group, but still the train of Ahmadiyyat Islam carried on on its tracks. Mm. And in terms of uh, this group splintering away, they took many of the followers, they took many of, much of the finances with them. Um, there's, so there's this young Bashiruddin who's been elected the Khalif. Uh, what sort of qualities did he have, uh, or show rather, as a young Khalif? 
which won over those who might have been dissuaded to go with the other group because a large party did go with them, but many eventually returned. It must have been the qualities of this young caliph. Yes, indeed. So the young caliph, uh, Hazrat uh, Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad, uh, his first task was to unify the Jamaat because obviously this was a very traumatic experience when the Jamaat members see a lot of the elders uh, leaving. Mm. Uh, but the Jamaat held strong and it was the task of the young caliph Hazrat Muslimad uh, uh, you know, with his addresses and writings to infuse the people. Obviously, it is uh, the enthusiasm of the Jamaat members which uh, is the key here. And, you know, his addresses and his writings were key in this. And, you know, as you can see, you know, Khali uh, the addresses and sermons, question answers delivered by uh, the present Hazur, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, who is the fifth caliph of Ahmadiyyat Islam, how inspiring they are, and people all over the world uh, listen to him and they, you know, are inspired. So in that, at that time, there was no worldwide international uh, coverage, but the little Jamaat in Qadian and, uh, and outside they had to be enthused, they had to be inspired, and there had to be the organization, the Jamaat had to be organized. And one of the things which Hazrat Muslim did, Raziyallahu, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, is that he organized the Jamaat in, uh, in such a way that it is lasting up to this day, you know, the gentleman. Uh, the men were divided into Ansar, the elders, the Khudam, the young, between the age of 15 and 40. And then the Atfal and syllabuses were given to them. They were trained, the separate duties were given to them. For example, the young Khudam, they had to do a lot of the uh, manual work. And, uh, you know, uh, and the Atfal were given training and parents were told how to uh, how to train them and the Ansar elders, they were given to more study and uh, reflection and prayers. And also the ladies were also organized uh, in Lajna in and Nasrat. So these are everlasting uh, organizational qualities uh, apart from the legacy of spiritual and um, uh, and, and, and yes, we'll be coming to those aspects as well in a second. But I think we'll leave some questions on that. No, it was it was regarding uh, his achievements in the spiritual and religious realm. Um, can you enumerate some of them uh, a bit more, please? All right. Okay. So, as I say, his addresses in um, you know a caliph is the spiritual head. He has to address the whole of the Jamaat. He has to carry the whole of the Jamaat with him. He does this through his writings and through his speeches. The speeches are in uh, Khutbah Jumas, which is every week in the annual conferences. And then, as I have said, uh, the, he, uh, as a Muslim out, had organized the Jamaat into Khudam, Ansar, Nasrat, Lajna, and they have their Ijtamaas, so they are addressed. So there's a whole volume of uh, not only you know weekly addresses through the khutbahs 
which are given, but also, you know, during the week he can pronounce on many, many matters. Uh, and uh, now most of these have been compiled, fortunately, in uh, a compilation called Anbarul Aloom, which is a compilation of all Hazrat Muslimaud's uh, addresses. Now, as far as other uh, spiritual and theological achievements, I think we must give we must give uh, um, high positioning to the larger commentary of the Holy Quran, which was undertaken by Hazrat Muslimaud. This is not only a translation, but also extensive commentary, and this is a full explanation of the Arabic lexicon, the language, the nuances which are used uh, in the Holy Quran. And then uh, to bring this larger commentary, you know, up to the modern age, the commentary includes many of the prophecies uh, of the Holy Quran and have been, you know, which uh, have been unearthed uh, or have come to fruition in our age. For example, the Panama and the Suez canals, or well, I should say Suez and Panama canals, in chronological order, how they are explained in Surah Al-Rahman and the discovery of the mummy of the pharaoh. So this is a, a wonderful, and I would say without parallel translation, commentary, and uh, it brings to life the, uh, the Holy Quran for the modern man, not only gives the, uh, the historical, uh, you know, for example, if you read Al-Baqarah, you will find extensive coverage of the Jewish, the Hebrew, uh, hist historical records, uh, and then, um, uh, you know, scientific discoveries are mentioned, and uh, geographically, like the Suez, Panama Canal, all these historical facts are brought into play. And then another one is the Tafsir Kabir, which is the shorter commentary. Now, this Tafsir is Sagir. Tafsir Sagir is the shorter commentary. Yeah, sorry about that. So this is a shorter commentary, which he, which as a Muslim's wish was to make it uh, uh, accessible to the common man, easy to understand. It is an idiomatic translation. It says on the cover, you know, Ba Mahavra Tarjama, which means idiomatic translation. You know, it's not literal because sometimes literal is very difficult to understand and very profound. But for the common man, the, this is a wonderful translation. Uh, I remember just to give you an anecdote, Hilmi Shafi Saab was an Arab scholar from Egypt. He used to give Friday sermons in Abu Dhabi when I was living there for about six, seven years. And he used to translate Hazrat Muslimah's works into um, Arabic and used to give uh, a, a gist in, in English as well. And he said his work, for example, on the angel, on angels, explaining to us about angels you know, this is one of the five uh, or five or six, what do they call it? Uh, principles. Principles uh, of art, articles, articles of, faith. of faith, yeah. Articles of faith. And he said his work on angels, he said there is so little written by Muslim scholars before this. And uh, as a Muslim out has been, um, you know, his extensive coverage is without parallel drawing on hadith, on uh, quotations from hadith and uh, from the Holy Quran itself to explain how angels work. So this is just to give you a gist of mm. the spiritual and theological achievements 
which, as I say, in Warul Alum is the is the compendium. Right. What about which, uh, the spread of Islam and uh, his uh, caliphate? It lasted what nearly fifty two years. What sort of uh, uh, achievements did he achieve in uh, did he achieve in spreading Islam? Yes. So I would say there are two basic categories. One is the spread of Islam uh, through missions and mosques all over the world. Uh, you know, this is not an easy task. Uh, it is training of missionaries first. How do you train them? You have to set up uh, seminaries. Mm. Uh, so in Jamia Ahmadiyya, we have a seminary. They have to be taught a lot of things like languages. For uh, you know, for example, those we are from East Africa. We know that those. Uh, Missionaries who come from uh, Rabwa to uh, East Africa, they have, they know uh, Swahili, uh, and uh, so there were in the East, there were missions and mosques and literature, uh, if like for example, far-off countries like Fiji and Indonesia. In the West, we had missionaries and uh, mission houses. Uh, and literature, England, Spain, Holland, Switzerland. Places where, places where Islam was almost forgotten or never reached. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So, or there was a very, yeah, forgotten is a good word to use for Spain and Portugal, I suppose. And never reached is a good word for England, Holland, Switzerland. And then also USA was, you know, the first missionary was sent. And there, their first task is to find a, a a place where you can have a mosque or a mission. And then also in Africa, West Africa, Nigeria, mm. Ghana, Sierra Leone. So this is very extensive. East Africa, we know well, Kenya, mm. Uganda, Tanzania. So the first missionary we all know was Sheikh Mubarak Ahmed Sahib in uh, 19, November 1934. He arrived. Uh, so... We have an, a very extensive uh, scheme. Mm. Now, this is now covered under Tahrik al-Jadid, which was also started by Hazrat Muslimaud. So, all these foreign missions come under the uh, Tahrik al-Jadid. But because you are talking about the spread of Islam, there's also the Waqf al-Jadid scheme because there were many, it was found in India, for example, there were many Muslim communities who were being influenced by Hinduism and were converting to Hinduism. And they were losing touch with the Islamic values and practices. So this Waqfajah Deed scheme was started. This should also be considered part of spread of Islam. Indeed. Whereby, uh, not missionaries, they call them Muallims, trained people, but on a quick basis. Uh, uh, they were sent to these remote villages and parts of mm. India. where And now this is covered in all of Africa as well, or at least yeah. West so basically, Africa, through yeah. under his caliphate, the arms are reaching out to every part of the world and helping yes. towards the prophecy of the promised Messiah, where he said, your message will reach the corners of the earth. And Mirza Bashir Din Mahmoud Amasab certainly played a key role in doing that. Finally, as a, on the uh, going back to the uh, the prophecy, it says that he will have secular knowledge as well. Just give us a brief outlook onto what sort of things. Uh, shows that he had these qualities and and what sort of influence did he have on people? Well, uh, secular knowledge, I would say, first of all, one if one reads or opens the larger commentary, one will see that this is not only religious, but uh, all contemporary events, history, the history of the Jews, all these are included in there. 
plus I mentioned some late discoveries, also scientific discoveries. Uh, now, as far as secular knowledge is concerned, there's also politics. And the advice he gave to the Palestinians in the wake of the Jewish uh, uh, emigration into Palestine and the steps he took uh, on Kashmir. You know, he was chairman or president of the All India Kashmir Committee, the first president. Uh, and, uh, you know, a great Indian, a great, sorry, Urdu poet, philosopher, scholar, uh, Alama Iqbal Sahib was one of the members. And he recommended that Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin should be the chairman. Uh, then he has, his, his, his writings cover so many aspects. Also on politics, the creation of Pakistan. You know, he was, uh, the Muslim was the person who, eventually, who actually uh, convinced uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah in 1933 to, uh, through our mission in London, uh, Maulana Darsab, uh, to convince Gina to come back to India to play an active role because this was a crucial time mm. uh, for the Muslims in India and he convinced Muhammad Ali Jinnah Sahib to come back and take the lead. Also his writings on um, uh, economic system of Islam, Islam and community. Also we must not forget that when the partition of India took place in 1947, so the, uh, because of communal riots, the uh, community had to, the Jamaat community had to migrate to Pakistan, and there they started a new town called Rabwa. And there, uh, you know, you need uh, town planning uh, acumen. You have to have knowledge, uh, water, electricity, all these kind of things. And a very successful town was built under the guidance of the second Khalifa, so this is one of the great achievements um, uh, of Hazar uh, Muslimaud in the secular knowledge field. Uh, I think we've done a great injustice in covering his achievements in such a short time, but you've done a wonderful job in briefly outlining the key points uh, that he has, he has achieved. Azza, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing with us uh, how the fulfillment of this great prophecy of the Promised Messiah, the, prom the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, Mr. Ghulam Ahmed, was achieved through... Thank you promise. very much for Thank having me. Right, Willie, uh, we're coming Thank to you. the next part. That's quite very interesting, and I think mm. we really... Fee, I feel that we, we've done injustice mm, to that mm. because there's so much. But maybe one day we'll, we'll mm. just cover the surface. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Touch the surface. Yeah, mm. the, as I said, tip of the mm -hmm. iceberg. Mm. Anyway, we we must move on. We got lots of other stuff to go through. The next item is community news. Weekend world. Community news. Uh, will it? Uh, in the Indian Express, uh, they report why are Ahmadiyya mosques in Pakistan under attack by vandals? This is in light of what happened in, uh, in Karachi with the de desecration of some mosque there, one particular mosque. Uh, killings of Ahmadis taking place quite mm. regularly now, and there seems to be an increase of persecution in Pakistan in the last month, few months or so. And uh, the the all party, poly, all party parliamentary group for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the MPs uh, who help the Ahmadiyya movement, uh, they visited Pakistan, and uh, the, one of the key um, leaders of uh, attending that was uh, Fleur Anderson. Uh, 
Um, and she tweeted that uh, Christians, uh, sorry, um, yeah, following her visit to Pakistan, she said Christians scheduled caste Hindus and MD Muslims are in different ways communities under siege. They face constant threat of attack, actual attacks, false imprisonment, with misuse of blasphemy laws, forced marriage, and conversion of women and girls. What else did she say in that tweet? Also discrimination at school and work, and Ahmadis are not allowed to vote. Uh, she says, we visited a Christian settlement in Islamabad with no water, electricity, or health care, and the Anglican and Catholic cathedrals of Lahore. The rise of extremism is a threat there as it is here. Yes, and she also posted a video, a clip of her uh, to, about the visit. This is what she said. I'm Fleur, I'm the MP for Putney, Roehampton and Southfields. Um, for the last week I've been in Pakistan raising issues of minority rights, um, especially rights of Christians, of Hindus and of the Ahmadine Muslims as well. And just talking to people in Pakistan about the issues they're facing Many constituents have raised these issues to me, with me, and I'm a member of the all-party parliamentary group for freedom of religion and belief. So I've been really pleased to be here in Islamabad and now in Lahore um, at the Human Rights Commission, meeting with other NGOs working on human rights, but talking to many people about the issues that we're facing, that, uh, that are being faced here. I'll be raising them with Parliament, um, and I'll be raising them um, with issues with my constituents in Putney as well. That was Fleur Anderson, uh, who uh, was part of the delegation from the APPG, uh, who visited uh, Pakistan. Joining us now is Mr. Sheikh Rahman. He's a human rights activist, campaigner, uh, and keeps a close watch on the Amdiya persecution in Pakistan, and in particular, uh, and uh, regularly features on our show. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Rahman. Peace be upon uh, you. Walaikum salam. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for joining, Sheikh Rahman. Uh, thank you. We, we just heard a clip from uh, Fleur Anderson, a visit to Pakistan yeah, last week. Yeah, uh, The APPG, uh, a fine body of MPs who support the Amdiya Muslim community, particularly the persecution uh, which is on the rise again in Pakistan, and the UK PPG for the Indian Muslim community have just visited Pakistan. Can you tell us, first of all, what has happened there in Pakistan in the past few weeks? Why is this persecution, it appears to be on the rise? What's, what's behind all this? I, I think two reasons. One, uh, Pakistan face, faces an ideological crisis, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, and that is um, something which... Uh, which becomes a problematic situation because the there is a constitutional status of the Ahmadis in Pakistan, which of course is contrary to how the constitution begins, because it says it guarantees the rights of citizens of Pakistan. And irrespective of the ideological differences that various uh, within Islam, uh, the one single community that has been s singled out and and declared non-Muslims, constitutionally declared non-Muslims, is is so uh, difficult to understand that how can the same constitution have one paragraph which says that, and then it goes on and declares a a community as a minority. Um, and, and non-Muslims. Uh, it's, it's definitely an ideological crisis. 
which uh, which needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed as quickly as possible and this is one thing that the british parliamentarians need to be made aware of um uh, and probably best to make them aware of this by employing a constitutional lawyer um and then providing him with enough material which uh, for example a paper that's done by um by latif hamdani on the forced minority the constitutional status of ahmadis in pakistan um this sort of thing you know has to be has to be presented to the british parliamentarians particularly the our, our appg and also the appg on muslims and appg on um human rights uh, within the um house of commons and house of lords uh, so that that becomes a a basis on which this whole this whole issue can be addressed and how britain um the european commission and the united states um can help resolve this issue uh within the within this uh, within the within pakistan um and that pressure group needs to be established and forced to to be um to become a pivotal point uh where there is this inconsistency within the constitution itself that denies human rights or rights of citizens i would say to the ahmadis in pakistan that's that's on an academic level mm. um and perhaps on a on a on a pressure point level as well because if that is if that issue is resolved then this law automatically becomes redundant and of course if the law becomes redundant then you can't have ahmadis being persecuted as they are being right now now in particular in the last one year since there has been a political crisis in the country um the ahmadis have become more vulnerable to being persecuted um both in terms of physical persecution of certain members of the ahmadiyya muslim community particularly those that are very high up uh, high ranking officers um in in our um in in the in the headquarters and or in certain other parts of the country uh, for example if if the president of uh, of the uh, the kasoor um, you know community has been um, being persecuted and held up uh, being not allowed to go and say his friday prayers and being threatened uh, to be killed if he deny if he does not denounce um ahmadiyat uh which is unfortunate but it is being used by the present government um in order to flare up or or create disturbances um in country in order to hide their own um uh, non performance of 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 providing uh, food uh, getting hold of all the all the uh, you know the cost of living crisis that has hit the, the whole world but particularly particularly the poor in pakistan um and yeah so it's it's actually a dig- digression from um the addressing the issues that the cu- country that the government should really be addressing um that has been a very sad state of affairs and the ahmadiyya issue has always been a very uh a very simple issue uh, to be 
to get people flared up on the question of khatme uh, nabuwat which is basically that we that the ahmadis uh, don't believe in the fact that uh, the holy prophet uh, hazrat muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam was the last prophet of islam mm. uh, last prophet and there is no prophet after him uh, of course which is an allegation which no scholar has been able to counter what the ahmadis believe in Yes. Um uh, Rahman um, uh, salaamu alaykum uh, I wanted you know we were talking about uh, the this visit uh, that has been conducted by the UK parliament the UK parliament has been made supportive for the rights of Ahmadis uh, uh, and in particular the persecution abroad uh, how how will this recent visit that has taken place uh, help this this cause and help the community I can tell you if 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 they really mean business and uh, from the clip that you just played for Flora Anderson they should help ahmadi refugees settle in the united kingdom there is a un quota um, that should be that should be given um, and specifically for 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 settlement of ahmadis in pakistan uh, sorry from um, oh, the well not just pakistan but also mm-hmm. malaysia thailand sri lanka wherever these poor guys poor families who have been forced to flee the country because of persecution and are now facing persecution in those countries mm. so you know this un refugee settlement status is something that this particular group who now have first hand experience of the persecution should really put pressure on the british government to allow those refugees to settle here mm-hmm. and those families to settle here that's action mm. Yeah, Ramat, uh, that that to me appears to be sticking a plaster on the problem because yes, they are being persecuted when we need to bring them over to into safety. But how do we stop the persecution? How do we change the mentality in Pakistan of the clerics, of the politicians, and the public that you do not persecute people, especially Ahmadis, which have become state persecution? unlike yeah. anyone else how can yeah. we how can that be brought about by the appg how, what they, what do they uh, need to do they speak to politicians don't they when they go there i But, think the appg cannot really play a, a very i mean they they obviously don't don't want to be seen to be interfering in the internal politics of the country all they can do is to and this is what they've been doing forever and ever but then you know if they demonstrate by action that look we are willing to take ahmadis into into our fold those that are being persecuted then action speaks louder than words and they can then 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 they can force or at least play a regular part in in getting the, you know the when they write to the ministry or they write to the uh, to the government of pakistan the government of pakistan has a very standard reply oh we have protection of the minority communities in pakistan now ahmadis to begin with are not a minority community we are by you know we call ourselves muslims so we could be termed as a muslim sect within the broader framework of islam like the sunnis shias uh, brailvis deobandis and whatever whatever right but we cannot but be- unfortunately because of this constitutional amendment and then the subsequent amendment to the ppc code um the ahmadis are being targeted and persecuted and continue to be do- continue to be 
to be, you know, for example, the graves are being desecrated. Now, who in their right mind would even go to this extent of desecrating the graves of the buried? So it's not just from from birth to 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 from cradle to to grave, but it's actually even after the burials have taken. And these are old graves, you know, which were hundred years old, maybe or whatever, and and yet they're being desecrated. The recent incident in Karachi of the minarets being um, being, and these are very small minarets. Where I mean, I I have, I do come from Karachi, and I've actually been saying my prayers in that mosque for many many years. Um, yeah, but you know, again, not a, not a healthy state of affairs. But you know, going back to the question we were just discussing about the politicians, etc., they are very much under the influence of the clerics uh, who yield a lot of power in Pakistan, unfortunately. See, they yield a lot of street power. They don't yield a lot of political power, mm -hmm. but they yield a lot of street power. And then the government and the establishment uses them um, in order to create disorder in the country. And that, as I said earlier on, is to basically um, hide their own own misgivings of, of addressing issues in Pakistan. For example, the economy, the cost of living crisis, mm. the food prices, and so on and so forth, the energy crisis that they're facing, the uh, fact that they don't have enough foreign currency, and then they are uh, talking about, you know, the, the port, not not enough dollars to, to clear goods at the port because the letters of credit are not being opened. Mm. I remember uh, the French ambassador, the Pakistani ambassador, visited, uh, uh, attended uh, the old, uh, an event at the European Parliament where they were discussing the case of the Ahmadis in the European Parliament. And when the Pakistani ambassador walked in and he denied any persecution of Ahmadis, mm. and yeah. uh, the chair said, well, he just lied to us. <laughs> yeah, so so their credibility by doing this sort of thing is not mm. helping Pakistan. It is, uh, it is doing them a disfavor of progressing. Mm. And uh, how, how can we change the mindset of the Pakistani politicians? The only way you can change the mindset of Pakistani politicians is if they actually go back to what the founder of the of the nation said that uh, uh, and that these are pertinent words of, of Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan in 1947, he stated you may belong to any religion, caste or creed that has nothing to do with the business of the state. This is exactly what was uh, the, the status then um, and th this is and this he proved with his actions because he appointed Sir Muhammad Zafrullah Khan as the first foreign minister of the country, who was an Ahmadi Muslim. Um, and subsequently, the Ahmadis have served the country in various capacities and um, loyal to the country, loyal citizens, which, of course, is the principle that Islam teaches us, mm. that we have to be loyal to the state, and we've done so. And, uh, and, but and continue to do so, even in, under these persecution. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Sheikh Rahman, thank you for that insight of uh, the predicament the Ahmadi Muslim community is facing in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. It appears political power is limited to what it can do, but uh, as they say, small drops make large oceans. And eventually... I think not just political power, Asin, sorry mm -hmm. to interrupt, That's it's okay. also the establishment, mm. which is, you know, your civil and your military establishment yeah. 
which actually plays into the hands of these uh, extremist elements. Right. And Ahmadis are the easiest and the softest target to create disorder in the country. Yeah. I mean, you know, when the minarets are being pulled down, the police is helping them pull down the minarets. Mm, <laughs> the police is, is supposed part, yes. to provide safety. Yeah. You know, so the yeah. state is supposed to provide safety to its citizens. Yeah. But yeah. here you go. That's what's happening, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, no, that's a, a very valid point indeed, that the establishment is supporting the persecution which is going on, and it's a sad indictment on Pakistan, a country we all love. Yes, absolutely. Indeed. Very uh, dear to our heart, absolutely right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sheikh Rahman, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thank you, sir. And we we'll can World Show as always, and uh, inshallah we shall have you back on the show for discuss Thank you. Things. Can I just make one point about the reference to... Hazrat Muslimaud, which you were discussing with Mm. Azhar. Yes. The Friday sermon that uh, Hazur delivered, uh, not this Friday, but the Friday gone, Mm. uh, was a very comprehensive sermon on his life and achievements. And some very new points came up in that sermon as well, which were were certainly unknown to me. So I think that should be widely circulated and presented to the to the world and to the members of the community. Uh, thank you for reminding us. Uh, that thank would you. have been the Friday sermon of the 10th of February. Uh, right. So, yeah, thank you very much. Jazakallah. Thank you. Jazakallah. Okay. okay. Uh, thank oh, no, sorry. You. So it would be the 17th, not the, not the 10th. 17th, sorry, yes. The 17th, yes. yes. Okay. Uh, Sheikh Rahman, thank you very much. Uh, Jazakallah. Thank you, uh, right, Walid. Uh, we're moving on to the last segment of the show, which uh, is the sports review, and I pass it over to you. Okay. Weekend World Sports Review. Salam Saif Hamdi, are you on the line? I am. Salam gentlemen. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you very much. Well, okay, so, so let's get to the uh, what is it? What they call brass tacks? Nitty gritty. Premiership first. Both the Two uh, league leaders uh, won yesterday. Do you think uh, 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 City are going to catch uh, Arsenal later on during the season? Oh, have you lost, Seth? Oh, dear. Was that Seth? such a difficult question? He's <laughs> 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 run away. But um, it was a very impressive display by, by Manchester City. Well, City uh, have, whenever yeah. they perform, they, they do, mm. but they do have some banana skins this year which mm. they haven't had in the past mm. so that's a surprise but Arsenal this year have been exceptional yeah. and uh, I think they're, they're surprised no no but they're playing excellent football mm. at, at that although mm. City play very good football as well mm. uh, but so Arsenal have uh, sort of continued a surprising success mm. after Arsenal Wenger this is the first real mm. success mm. so it's good to see that they're you know get, getting the 1-0 wins are as important yeah. as getting the 4-1 wins mm. which City achieved so mm. but I still see that Arsenal many are doubting that, that they were expecting some slip-ups and there mm. haven't been many mm. uh, there was a minute yeah, one they have been a bit they, yeah, yeah but, but, but yeah. they're still up there they're still with the lead yeah, and if yes. they, they win their game in hand that will still take them five points clear mm. um, so I think it's Arsenal are doing well. Mm. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the matches that are going to be played today, mm. uh, you've got Manchester United playing Newcastle. This is the cup final, English Football League mm. final. How do you see that going, Willie? Uh, Manchester United having a resurgence. They've knocked out Barcelona. Yes. Rashford is on fire. Mm. Um, 
how do you see this game? Well, uh, all the pundits are are agreed that it is uh, Manchester United's uh, game to lose. Mm. Um, a lot of uh, plaudits. Um, just like Arsenal's revival, Manchester United have also uh, experienced a revival under their new manager. Uh, and uh, uh, it seems that they may be uh, on uh, on track for their first uh, first trophy, but uh, I think it would be wrong to uh, discount Newcastle. Uh, Newcastle are, from, for, are very formidable. They were fighting uh, relegation uh, last year uh, and now really have uh, have improved. I think buoyed by the uh, by the uh, prospect of new money coming in, <laughs> yes. but um, they they are a very strong side. So you've got um, players like um, uh, well. You know that players. Think. Well, if you look at the league position, you got uh, Newcastle at fifth, Manchester at mm. three. So they, you know, they're close and they're within reach of each other. Uh, although mm. Man United are slightly pulling away, but Newcastle have done exceptionally well. Yes, yes. What about the other game, the Tottenham versus uh, Chelsea? This is the Premier League game. Mm. London derby is always great, yeah. and this is one of the biggest rivalries going on. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, they 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 both would contend that they've underperformed this year. Mm. Uh, it's just that um, uh, uh, they haven't. I mean, despite the money that has been spent by the uh, Chelsea board, mm. they're still languishing uh, in, in the lower half of the, of the table. Yeah, uh, they are tenths uh, from what I can read. Um, but um, 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 and they both need to to perform well um, and, yeah, in this in this particular match. Um, uh, Chelsea on paper are certainly the stronger side, um, but uh, Tottenham with Kane and Son, well, you may never know whether well, they. And you say on paper, mm, Tottenham are number four in the league, yes. and Chelsea are ten. Yes. So on paper, Tottenham seems to be the. Yeah, team. but if you look at the the players that ah, uh, Chelsea I see have what got, you're yes, about. Yeah, then yeah. you know this. Uh, and the money that they spent compared yes, to Tottenham, to yes. com- Tottenham haven't spent a lot yeah, of money by yeah. comparison. And we uh, were talking about Arsenal, I and mean, that's the remarkable feat of no. Arsenal that they have, they haven't spent much, no. and and they never did during Arsenal Wenger's yes. time either. So, so, you know, the um, some of us are rooting for Arsenal to, <laughs> to, uh, to overcome uh, City's challenge. Indeed. Mm. Um, On to the cricket. Um, I don't know if you're following much, but England are doing exceptionally well. They've, mm. been, they've just beaten Pakistan in Pakistan. A three-nil thrashing, a drubbing really of Pakistan, and deservedly so. And the and against New Zealand, which are a highly skillful team and a very strong team, England are just putting them away as if uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're they're a lower class team, which they're not. Mm. It just shows you the mentality. What everyone's talking about the mentality that uh, Brendan Malcolm uh, McCallum mm. and Ben Stokes have brought to England. Mm. This very positive attitude, very harsh, very aggressive mm. type of cricket, and that's why it's producing these results mm. at the moment. It could go wrong if, if the uh, uh, the team doesn't perform. So, but, so the drubbing of Pakistan cannot be just simply attributed to the performance to the poor performance of Pakistan. Pakistan were but, no, but credited to the to English. the very good performance of England and the style of cricket they are playing, and and then then further exemplified in this. In this match against clearly, New Zealand, clearly yeah. there was a feeling mm. after the Pakistani game that maybe mm. the Pakistani team were underperforming, mm. which they weren't. Mm. Although they had two bowlers, key mm. bowlers not playing, mm. uh, Afridi and Shaheen, uh, mm. Nasim, 
Uh, but uh, overall, England looked the stronger team mm. every game mm. in, in Pakistan. Now, they're coming to New Zealand, and mm. this was going to be the test. Mm-hmm. And I think England are, at mm. the moment, the world's best team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Who's the new batsman that's come in that has really, uh, that's, really Yeah, shone. that's Harry Brook. Uh, uh-huh. he's, uh, he's, he's a very... He's like His a average is over 100. He, he, hits, he plays like T20 cricket, right? Oh. He scores <laughs> at a very high rate. He scored 186 in the first innings. Uh-huh. Uh, but I tell you the real story in this in this test uh-huh. is the James Anderson... And oh, Chris Broad. Yeah, and Ansar. And Ansar. He's 40 years old. <laughs> yeah. He's just taken three wickets in this yeah. innings. He was the man of the match in the previous test. Uh-huh. Chris Broad mm-hmm. has come back and taken four wickets today mm-hmm. uh, into uh, overnight. Mm-hmm. And he's approaching 40. Oh, right. right. These two bowlers, mm. I mean, f- for fast bowlers to be in the top ranking bowlers, wicket mm. takers in, in test cricket is unusual. Mm. Anderson is three and Broad is five. And all the right. rest are spinners. That just tells right. you how well they do. Yeah. Anyway, that was the cricket and the sports and the football. Uh, thanks to our listeners and thanks to our guests. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.